Glacier Point in Yosemite National Park provides a stunning view of the Yosemite Valley. This picture here captures just a narrow slice of the majestic natural beauty the eye can drink in from this promontory. There's, as you can see, at least in part, soaring mountain peaks and verdant chiseled valleys, the flashing gleam of the snaking Merced River, the sky-diving waterfalls that are second to none. Now imagine that you're basking in the wonder of this scene and a young honeymooning couple strolls up next to you hand in hand. They're remarkably attractive people. In fact, you look at them and say they must be movie actors or maybe they're models or something like that. They really are a good-looking couple. But oddly enough, you watch them take a quick glance at this majestic scene and they turn their backs and they sit down and they start talking very loudly to each other, demonstrably. As you watch this strange couple, you can hardly believe it, but it seems that they're actually trying to get people to look at them. As if the valley is little more than a hazy backdrop to the contemplation of their own beauty. While you stand there blinking in disbelief, another very attractive honeymooning couple strolls up next to you. This is all hypothetical, obviously. (laughs) But they take a quick glance at the glorious scene stretched out before them, and their faces fall as well. And they spin on their heels, and there's a look of disappointment almost on their face as they walk away. And you hear the groom say to his bride, well, that scene's a lot more attractive than we are. We might as well just go home. Yeah, there's no place for our beauty here, she says, as with pouty lip and slumped shoulders, they head off to the parking lot. You say, those couples have issues. This is going to be some troubled marriages coming up here. As you spin on your heel and look the other way back at the majestic valley and revel in its beauty. In recent weeks, we have, as it were, looked down from glacier point of Scripture to view the stunning display of a God who ordains and governs all that comes to pass. We have stood on the heights of a grand vision of God, a God who works out all things, big and small, good and evil, according to the purpose of His will. We have seen a sovereign God who reigns with unfettered freedom, with perfect wisdom and absolute power, such that He does whatever He pleases, Psalm 135.6. And no purpose of His can be thwarted, Job 42.2. God declares without equivocating, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And Isaiah says, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Jeremiah asks rhetorically, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad things come? 1 Samuel 2 says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. And this sovereign God's governance and activity in this world we have seen over the last couple of weeks very pointedly described in Scripture as applying to the salvation of individuals. God does not stop in His sovereign ordination and governance of all things, at the place of a person's salvation. But as Romans 9 made so very clear last week, let's turn there, in fact, just as we review that statement, Romans 9 and verse 11. We read here in Paul's writings of God's purpose, Romans 9-11, His purpose of election that it may continue, not because of works, but because of His call. God says as the passage continues, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then salvation depends, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16. 
The doctrine of God's sovereignty and of His providential ordination and governing power over all that comes to pass is a glorious truth that opens wide vistas into the splendor of God and into the meaning of His Word. And I trust in part among many things that are accomplished in this series that it does open to us passages of Scripture like we've never seen them before. But at this point in our journey, it is important that we face the danger of wrongly responding to these truths. And these dangers are significant. This should fall out fairly obviously to us who have labored through these series of sermons. But first of all, there is the danger to elevate human freedom at the expense of divine sovereignty. And we've looked at these two ideas and at their compatibility. But the danger to elevate human freedom such that like at Glacier Point, the majesty of God's sovereign ordination of all things and His governance of all things is seen almost like a hazy backdrop to the main idea and emphasis of human freedom. Now there's many ways of doing this, some that become entirely unorthodox. But in doing this, everyone must minimize what the Bible says about the free will. We would support, the Scriptures support, and we'll say more on this later, that people do have free will. But we must not minimize what the Bible says about the freedom of the will or indeed the bondage of the will. Naturally, people are bound by the dictates of a corrupt will. People choose what they most want. They cannot want anything that they wish. The loss cannot choose to seek God. Romans 3 and verse 11 says very clearly. The human will is also restricted by the prevailing circumstances of life. And so to so elevate human freedom as to put God's sovereignty in the background as a hazy backdrop is to minimize what the Bible says about the human will. It is secondly to minimize passages that speak of God's predestination and election and sovereign choice of individuals to salvation. These texts need to be twisted or they simply cause embarrassment. But in some way or other, they are set back in the backdrop and not dealt with honestly. And one of the grave dangers that enters in here in the words of J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he writes that if we forget that it is God's prerogative to give results when the Gospel is preached, we shall start to think that it is our responsibility to secure them. And if we forget that only God can give faith, we shall start to think that the making of converts depends in the last analysis not on God, but on us we will seek irresistible technique for inducing a response. And our evangelism will become merely a battle of wills if we regard it as our job to secure converts. When God's electing, predestinating influence and salvation is minimized, the sinner's responsibility to repent is easily confused with their ability to repent. And the witness's responsibility to proclaim the truth is confused with his or her ability to open blind eyes to the gospel. This we cannot do, and the error in it all is choosing an either or rather than a both and. And we want to maintain, as Scripture does, this both and. There is human responsibility, the gospel must be obeyed. People must respond in faith to the Gospel to be saved. Those who reject Christ as Savior will spend eternity in hell. We must proclaim the Gospel to the lost. Their future depends upon it and Jesus commands it. Indeed, designs that our witness will be used by Him to bring the lost to faith. But with this human responsibility, we do not want to put divine sovereignty in the background. To so emphasize human freedom that we fail to emphasize what the Bible also emphasizes of divine sovereignty. 
The Bible also says that God predestines individuals to salvation, Ephesians 1.5. He appoints people to eternal life, Acts 13.48. He gives to the Son specific people to enter His fold, and He secures them, John 6 and 10. It's beyond our limited minds to fully grasp, but God says it is a both and. Human freedom and divine responsibility are compatible realities. So if human freedom is likened to the good looks of this first couple at Glacier Point, we are not to say they're ugly. We're not denying that people have freedom and responsibility. They in fact do. What we are saying, as theologian Stephen Sharnock put it, we must not deny a perfection in God to support a liberty in ourselves. We must not deny a perfection in God, His sovereignty, His governance, in order to support a liberty in ourselves, our freedom. It is both and, not either or. To elevate human freedom at the expense of divine sovereignty is a temptation for some. I would say as we have studied the Scriptures together as a church, as we stand together generally, theologically, on the same position, I don't think that's our major temptation. To minimize the sovereignty of God is not where we find a particular battle. But in the second deficiency, we may find more temptation. And that is to forsake human responsibility in resignation to divine sovereignty. Here again in Romans chapter 9, after Paul says in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. In verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's strong em emphasis there on the sovereignty of God. He comes then in verse 19, remember this question. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist His will? So arguing at length that God chooses individuals to salvation on the basis of His sovereign will, if we're tracking with what the Spirit is saying here, Paul says you will have a natural objection. I want to springboard off of this in a sense, in like manner, in light of God's sovereign ordination and governance of all that comes to pass, a very natural reaction takes place in our minds. And it is this, why then evangelize? Why then pray? Why then care? So to use Paul's words, we might say, you will ask then, why do these things? And here, I think, is our particular challenge as a church. Maybe not with all of us, but I think with most of us. If God elects individuals unto salvation, as the Bible says... Why bother proclaiming the gospel? If God ordains all that comes to pass, why pray? If every trial and every undertaking of my life is ordained and governed by God, why care? Is it even right to cry, to hurt, to contend for something other than what has obtained in my life. Is this not a way of simply opposing the sovereign God? These questions come to mind. And in a sense, they lead us then, by way of analogy, to this second couple who simply throws up their hands and walks away. And says, God's got it all under control. I just leave. I've got nothing to do here. Why evangelize? Why pray? Why resist His will? Why care? As we work toward an answer, I want to start with a vital theological consideration. I draw here from theologian Bruce Ware and have gained much from his writings for this sermon. But I think he starts, and I think it's right to start, with a little broader plane of theological perspective. This may not click at first, but it's an important piece in our understanding. So follow through with me. Our Creator, we know, exists outside of time and space. He existed before He created. 
He's not bound by time or space. However, you know as you read the Bible that He also dwells in every spatial reality and temporal moment. The, the Bible depicts a much more dynamic relationship between God and His world than one who is distant from it, completely unaffected by time and space. Remember what Jesus says to Saul on, his, on the road to Tarsus. Why are you persecuting Me? In time and space, Jesus Himself is involved with His people and affected by the sins that people commit. What God ordains in eternity past then, He brings about actively in time and space in living relationship with people. God genuinely accomplishes His purposes in relationship with us. So Ware writes, He hears our cries and responds He understands our weaknesses and sympathizes. He witnesses our defiance and He frowns. He scorns our ultimate treason and He judges. He sees our folly and He grieves. He comprehends our hopelessness and He saves. Therefore, while God's effect on us is maximal, God has so designed that we also affect Him. I think there's no other way to honestly read Scripture. God affected by us? Well, think of it. It makes perfect sense. The unchanging God is genuinely affected by His relationship with sinners on a number of levels. Think of God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's judgment. They reflect His character. They reflect who He is. But how could these things be seen apart from interaction with sinners? Do you imagine in your mind that in eternity past, God the Father was forgiving God the Son? Or that God the Spirit needed to extend mercy and grace to God the Father? I mean, it's ridiculous. Of course not. God relates in time and space with people according to His purposes, and that interreaction brings about a true relationship with God, in which He is, in some sense of the term then, truly responding to and changing in His relationship in time and space with people. His character doesn't change. His purposes do not change. But He is really there with us in the give and take of life. Now all of that leads us to these three questions at hand, more specifically then. That broader picture of God in time and space, though separate from it, transcendent above it. Why, number one, should we evangelize? God commands us to proclaim the Gospel because our witness is His chosen means by which He will save those He has ordained to save. I bring us back to this theme as we think here again on Romans 9 and we remember back two weeks ago to Ephesians 1. Who is writing these ideas? The most passionate and pointed writer who defends predestination and election in the Scriptures is the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ. Though we're speaking of writer here, so we're speaking of the Apostle Paul. He he speaks at great length about predestination and election. People have been chosen unto salvation. How does he look at the relationship between human responsibility and divine ordination? Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We find here in his own testimony how he responds to this truth of God's sovereignty in salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. He says to Timothy, I'm in chains. I am imprisoned for the cause of Christ. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure persecution. They obtain the salvation that is in Christ. All of this in the interest of the elect of God. 
do we see Paul throwing up his hands in light of the majesty of God's electing purposes and walking away and saying, well, what's the use? Not at all. I endure everything. I am here in prison for those that God has chosen. Indeed, he did endure everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's amazing that the man didn't die sooner than he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember here, comparing himself to false teachers, Paul admonishes the Corinthians to consider his credentials in spreading the gospel. So he says in 2 Corinthians 11.23, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I don't want to talk this way. But as we talk about credentials in the faith, I am superior to them as a servant of Christ. On what basis, Paul? With far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Well, you answer the question. Does his solid and firm belief in God's eternal election of lost individuals to salvation, does it lead him to lay back and say, why evangelize? It seems, in fact, to the contrary, that when we come to truly understand the sovereign authority of Christ, that it will drive us and motivate us to run into His majesty, not to walk away from it to work with Him in His purposes. And more on this in a moment. But Paul's friend, Luke, caught this so beautifully in his history of the early church. Acts chapter 13, I referenced it just a moment ago. But Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, we see here an emphasis on divine sovereignty which will be followed up by an emphasis on human freedom and responsibility. In Acts chapter 13, as Luke tells the story of Paul's efforts to evangelize with nothing held back, inspired by God to carry the message to a lost world, Acts 13.48, the Gentiles hear this message from the Apostle, and they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's a pretty solid Statement of sovereignty, isn't it? Notice then how Luke records the next scene. Chapter 14 and verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now Luke, in connection in describing Paul's labors, has no problem saying it that way. There were those appointed to eternal life who believed, and the apostles spoke in such a way that people responded in saving faith. It's a both and, not an either or. No one believed in the sovereign election of individual sinners to salvation more than Paul. And that drove him to pour out his life for the gospel in active participation with the electing purposes of God. In no way, shape, or form did this lead him to rest and to say, I don't need to proclaim the gospel. It led him rather forward. I think then if we understand the sovereignty of God, it will lead us to witness more, never less. 
And anyone that witnesses less because of the doctrine of God's election and predestination does not understand these truths. Simply doesn't understand it. And perhaps many of us coming to embrace that need to consider that truth and realize that maybe we don't have it as figured out as we think we do. If in any way it leads us to back off and to not be worried about the loss. Now it does allow me to go to bed at night and not jump off a cliff when I think of people going into hell. That's the only thing that keeps me from absolute insanity. I know that God is sovereign. But having said that, it should lead us to witness more, not less. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration here that I know can be picked apart on a lot of levels, but it's helpful to me on some level. There's a family that plans to hold a wedding for a poor couple at their home. It's a very poor couple. They want to be married. It's a good situation, but they just do not have money for any kind of a wedding. So this family, it's the middle of the summer, and they're going on a Friday night going to have the wedding at their property, their, their, their home. Dad is going to be at work all day. Mom is going to be making days, uh, spending the day in preparation off-site, doing all kinds of things and last-minute things. And Dad speaks to the boy and the girl, the teenagers that are there in the home. He says to his daughter, I'd like you to make the sandwiches. You know what that's all about. I want you to go to work today and make those sandwiches. And to the son, he says, I want you, now listen to me, I want you to mow the lawn. I want it mowed carefully thoughtfully, conscientiously, this yard needs to look good tonight. And you do that. I can do that. Sister gets right at work. She gets her sandwiches made, working diligently. The brother has some friends come over, and he doesn't quite get around to mowing the lawn. And the day gets away from him, and he realizes far too late, I didn't get it done. And he goes running back home about five minutes before the wedding, knowing that he's terribly failed here. And he walks onto the scene, and the wedding is, be, is just about to begin, and the lawn is mowed perfectly. The yard looks beautiful. The whole setting is beautiful. And the wedding takes place, and it all looks so good, and it's done so well. And the, the couple is so thankful and so happy. And as it ends, mom and dad have this look on their face of thanksgiving that also looks very tired, but there's joy in their faces as they think of what they've just pulled off as a family to bless this couple. And the brother is standing there as father walks up to sister and with joy on his face and a gleam in his eye, he looks in her eyes. And he says, thank you. Thank you for making those sandwiches. And thank you for mowing the lawn. And then he turns as his face stiffens and his eyes cloud. And there's no word spoken to brother, but as the brother looks into his eyes, there's an emptiness, a regret, a pain that he had nothing to do with this. The job got done, but he lost the joy of the harvest. Now again, this can be picked apart because I think any genuine believer will share the gospel of Christ in some way, shape, or form. But as we just look at the emotional level, the response level, there's a sense in which we would be like that brother if we go into eternity saying, God's got it covered. The elect will come to salvation. There is no resisting of the will of God. I don't need to share the gospel and I can rest in the fact that God will take care of it all. We will enter into eternity. We're still part of the family. But we will enter into eternity with a sense of loss on some level. Think of the joy of those who enter into eternity knowing that they have shared the Gospel of Christ and have joined with Jesus to accomplish His purposes on earth. The day will be done. Sin will be gone. And there will be a rejoicing in His presence.
Why evangelize? Because God calls us to do so. And we join with Him to proclaim His saving grace to His chosen sheep. We go with energy and with zeal if we truly understand the sovereignty of God. Well, merging right with that, and very much along the same lines, we ask then, why pray? If God ordains all that comes to pass, how can prayer make any difference? Prayer does not inform God of anything. It doesn't change His mind. He knows already what He is going to do, so why should I pray? Very briefly, we can say, number one, simple obedience. The God who orders us to do only what is good for us, only what contributes to abundant life, commands us to pray and promises to answer our prayers. Matthew 7 and verse 7. Matthew 7 and verse 7, as was read earlier. Is Jesus playing a game here with us when He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? If we put our confidence and our trust in human fathers to do what is good for children who ask, how would we think that God would do anything else? This God who enters into time and space with us and relates with us genuinely will give us what we ask when it is good and when it is right. Now sometimes we ask for the serpent and we ask for the stone to eat and He says no. But He always hears. We enter into this situation as obedient children. Ask, He says by way of command. Seek and knock knowing of His promise. As Ephesians 6 says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. God is not playing a game with us. He does answer prayer. And so, now again, this can be taken wrongly. But I think there's a point here. William MacDonald says, when we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come the closest to omnipotence that it is possible for mortal man to come. We obey the One who answers prayer. He asks that we pray. He calls us to pray, promising to answer, promising to work out His purposes through us. And not only is it obedience to the God who answers prayer, but secondly, it is relationship. Prayer is an invitation to commune with God, to talk to Him about what matters to both of us. Prayer is a means certainly of praise and of thanksgiving. And often this objection why pray is simply looking at things where we are requesting something of God. But there is thanksgiving, there is praise, there is joy in God that is expressed in prayer. We throw our cares upon Him. For He cares for us. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. And then if you'll notice Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7. Verses we need to be very familiar with because in the trials of life we will have many opportunities to put these words into practice and they pertain to prayer. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. I said Philippians 2. Philippians 4, I'm sorry. Philippians 4 and verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's His promise. The peace of God, will, that which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace and protection of heart. There's a relationship here between us and God in prayer. It's foolish to say, why pray? It's how I relate to God in part. A third idea is partnership. And this comes more closely to pertain to the topic at hand. 
Prayer is an opportunity to labor with God in bringing about what He has ordained to fulfill His ultimate purposes. We come close to omnipotence here, not because anything such as that is in us, but it's in God who works through the prayers of His people. Going back to Romans chapter 9, we see this connection. Paul's strong statement in verse 11, again, It is God's purpose in election that will continue, not because of works, but because of His call. Verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy, who sovereignly extends that mercy. But look where he goes in chapter 10 and verse 1. As he speaks of Israel and her lostness, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. This one who wholeheartedly believes that it depends not on human will or exertion, verse 16, prays to God that people will respond to the Gospel. Are we seeing the connection? When we come to discern the sovereignty of God, we don't pray less, we pray more. We realize a sovereign God is out there bringing people to Himself and we pray in their behalf that God will bring about His desire. Has God the Father given certain individuals to the Son to enter His fold? Yes. Does God use the witness of His people to save souls? He does. Faith comes by hearing the Gospel. Paul will say later, how will they hear unless they are sent? Will God send out labors into the harvest? Indeed He will. And He calls us to pray these realities into being to join with Him in His sovereign purposes to see a lost world come to Christ the Savior. This is our calling. It is our high privilege. Again, this can be very much misconstrued. But one has said prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. We believe the future that God has called out a people to Himself. We believe that He will do that. And so we evangelize and we pray in obedience to Christ and in participation with Him. We believe in a sense the future into being. Not in the wrong sense. We create the future through our thoughts or prayers. But in the sense that we trust in the promises of God. So we see here Jesus in Luke chapter 22, and we enter on to mystery. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Why pray? Why would Jesus pray? We simply follow His example. Luke 22 and verse 39. He came out when as was His custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed Him as He faces His last hours. And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, they enter into temptation. But He calls them to pray. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. If You are willing... Remove this cup from me. He knew that he was going to die. He prophesied this numerous times to his disciples. And yet in his humanity, in the real interaction between he and his father, he says, if there is a way, remove it from me but ends, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, which is what genuine prayer is. It's not changing the mind of God. It's partnering with God in His purposes. It's not a perfect picture. I think prayer in one sense is like a dad taking his daughter on his lap in a car and letting her steer along with him. This is out in some remote place somewhere, okay? It wouldn't be a very good dad otherwise would have been driving around here. But out, out where there's no one around, he drives the car safely down the road. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows what he's doing. He's 
fully in control of that vehicle, but he allows her to put her hands on the wheel and to steer with him. She's not steering against him. Is she steering with him? Well, yes and no. She's not driving the car, determining its, its direction. She's too young to even have the ability to do that. But she is, in one sense, cooperating with him. And as he turns the wheel, she turns the wheel. And that is us as we pray. We don't steer the course of the future. We don't bring the future into being through our own sovereign ideas. But we join with the sovereign God and cooperate with Him to bring about what He intends. Why pray? Because our all-knowing, all-wise, infinite, almighty God, a perfect wisdom, an absolute power, an unmitigated freedom, sets us in His lap and says, steer with me. That doesn't lead me to throw up my hands and say, I want nothing to do with that. God's got it all figured out anyway. It's to run into the beauty and the wonder of His sovereignty and to work with it and grow with it and learn to pray in defiance against what is that His will would be brought into being in this world to steer with our Father. Why care? If God ordains all that comes to pass, is it not wrong then for me to suffer disappointment? Isn't it wrong to cry? To be filled with grief? If I strive against what God has ordained, am I not striving against the will of God in some way? If I want things to be different than they are, isn't that evil? Would it not then be better to simply have an attitude of resignation that feels no emotion over bitter providence? I think the answer is absolutely not. That's really just simply submitting to fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that everything must be exactly as it is. There can be no other way than what happens. That's not the universe in which we live. God knows all contingencies. He knows what would be under all circumstances. And He has by His sovereign grace purposed this world to be. The first century Stoic philosopher Epictetus advised his followers to begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself and if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. As T.R. Glover quoted by Barclay put it, the Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it a peace. What they're saying is if you trust in fatalism, yield to fatalism, you will never be hurt. You'll just go with the flow of whatever is. I think this is distinctly unbiblical. Remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Remove this cup from me. But I yield to your purpose as Jesus prayed. Tennis great Arthur Ashe was preparing to die of AIDS in 1993 and he said this, God's will alone matters. Not my personal wants or needs. When I played tennis, I never prayed for victory in a match and I will not pray now to be cured. There's something very noble in that perspective on the surface. It certainly stands above those who are demanding that God make everything better all the time. Think that God's some sort of rabbit's foot that we just rub in our pocket when we pray and get what we want out of Him. I, I'd much rather see this attitude, but I think this falls terribly short. I don't think it's biblical. 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. I think we see a far more honorable, biblical perspective on how to respond to a terminal diagnosis. 2 Kings chapter 20, or around 700 B.C., 
in that range. And in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now as the text plays out, we understand this is to be read, all things remaining as they are, you will die. Verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before You in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in Your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He dismisses the prophet in this sense. He begins to pray. He appeals to God's covenant promises to Israel to extend the life of those who are obedient according to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and 30. Hezekiah is serving Israel at this time and there's great pressures upon the nation. He doesn't want to die. But we also see here certainly no spirit of resignation to the divine will. He doesn't say, I'm not going to ask God to heal me. And, verse 4, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, I don't know how far that was, but not very far, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. And what does God say? Who do you think you are raging against my sovereign purposes? No, he said, Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you, and I will deliver this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Obviously, God knew how this matter would turn out. He intends to spare Hezekiah for fifteen years more years and to spare Jerusalem from this assault from Assyria. But as God interacts with Hezekiah in time and space, He genuinely responds to His prayer and He receives this request and these tears. This is bitter providence and that's how we are to respond to bitter providence, as if it's bitter. He sought to move God through prayer and God acted in His behalf God does not rebuke Hezekiah for not accepting his fate. Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. This ailment was some type of ulcerated sore which in that day was treated with a fig poultice. And we notice then the human means are used to bring Hezekiah to health. But this isn't how it always turns out, is it? The Spirit of grief and the zeal in prayer is appropriate in response to bitter providence. That's not how it always works out. You remember King David pleading in prayer for his son who died. And we think ultimately again of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane who says, remove this cup from me, but says ultimately, your will be done. And so it would need to be with Hezekiah, but it's not wrong to pray that God would change circumstances when bitter providence presses in upon us. So going back to Glacier Point, what it is in this analogy is an invitation to explore the wonder of God's nature. To run out into the majestic splendor of God's greatness to see it, to experience it, to look at it, to run into it as a live human being. Not to walk away from it. Not to strive to put it in the background so that human freedom can be advanced at all costs. Not throwing up my hands and saying, it doesn't matter anyway. It is a call to run into the purposes of God. His sovereign greatness should never be minimized and never serve as an excuse to throw up our arms and walk away. Never. In fact, as we see in these three ideas, the more we see the splendor and wonder of God's sovereign grace, the more we should want to run into that splendor and to live with zeal and passion for His cause. 
The irony, at least in our faulty minds, is that the more fully we embrace the sovereignty of God, the bigger He is. The result is that we witness more with greater passion and zeal. We pray harder, seeking to move this world forward in cooperation and partnership with God. And we more zealously live our Christian lives. We cry more and we rejoice more because we know there is a sovereign God who in time and space works with His people to evangelize, to pray, to live with zeal for God is to participate in the sovereign purposes of the Lord. Run into the scene of this majesty. Go into it as a healthy human being in your healthy spiritual relationship with the Lord and win people to Christ whom He has called to Himself. And pray with zeal and passion. Cry and rejoice bow before bitter providence and cry out to God for an answer and rejoice in the blessings that He pours down upon our heads every day. Resignation, giving up, drawing attention to ourselves, our immature and deficient responses to the sovereignty of God. We're to revel in it and to allow it to lead us to more faithfully serve Him as His witnesses, as those who partner with Him in prayer, and of those who respond to His providences, whether bitter or sweet. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that in this application we would be encouraged I pray that You would rebuke us of any pouting that we may do. Of any questioning that may be in our spirit about why we should tell others of Christ or pray or live real lives in the midst of a fallen, suffering world. I pray that You would help us, Father, to live with abundance and purpose pouring out our souls because You are a sovereign God. Help us to this end. For anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, as we have said, the will is bound, but You are capable of opening eyes. And we pray that You will this day and draw people to the realization that as the sovereign God who rules over all, that You freely give salvation to those who repent and put their trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. May that truth lighten the soul and lighten those who do not know You as Savior among us. We pray according to Your sovereign purposes. For those who know You, may we leave here in worship with joy. In Christ's name, Amen.